Hello, Shane Coleman here and welcome to the Top 5 Books podcast where we ask well-known people to come up with their top five books. Today we're joined by somebody whose book I read a few years ago and I was hugely, hugely uh, taken by it. I'm talking about Tony Griffin, the uh, former Clare All-Star hurler. His book was uh, Screaming at the Sky. Tony Griffin, you're very welcome to the programme. Great to be here. Uh, Thanks, great Shane. to have you in. And, uh, you know, I, I suppose most people will see you as a, a hurler or will think of you as a hurler mm-hmm. and, a, and a very fine hurler as well. But I have to say that book, and, and I'm not just saying it because you're here, it was just an incredible book. I've read many sports biographies and autobiographies over the years. This one was kind of different. Mm. This one was, you, you kind of, you sort of wrote it from the soul, I think, if it doesn't sound too cliched to say that. Yeah, no, I think it, there's definitely an element of truth in that. And first of all, thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Yeah, when we wrote Screaming at the Sky, a really good friend of mine, a guy called TJ Flynn, who was an incredible writer, he and I wrote it together and when we wrote it I gave him a kind of an excerpt I wanted to write something about what it was like to in your head feel you were a professional hurler but the world sees you as an amateur a sports person I gave him a few pages and he said I think there's way more in this so I suppose it came out of the back of my father dying and that for me was a cathartic experience even just compiling it so it was very honest I remember a few times thinking this is not your usual sports book at least it's it wasn't not. like the ones I'd no. read maybe a little bit like Paul McGrath or Tony Cascarinas because there was a level of truth in it that I knew I hoped was universal and it's been proven since I suppose that it was very universal Yeah It also dealt with the extraordinary journey and by journey I'm, I'm not talking in the cliched sense yeah. I mean literally where you cycled across Canada which how many thousand miles It was 7,000 kilometres so okay. we did it over or I, suppose I did it over 51 days I had a brilliant support team but yeah my father had passed away I was really struggling with the grief following that and it just was one of these things that you know, I don't know, was it meant to be? But it definitely wasn't um, your norm. So I took a year off from hurling and started in Vancouver, ended up in Halifax. And I was studying there at the time, so Canada fascinated me anyways. But it was a true journey in every sense of the word, both physically and metaphorically. But uh, I met my life, my wife on the last uh, day. That's almost a Freudian slip there, met my life. <laughs> but I definitely, I got so much of that experience. It was a wonderful experience. And it was one of these things that, if I look back and I hadn't done it, life would be far less rich. Yeah. Well, OK, fantastic. Look, we'll chat more about that in a moment. But let, let's get to uh, some of your choices because, you know, there's some fascinating choices in there. Tell us about your, your first choice, The Alchemist. By pa- How do you pronounce it? Paolo? Paolo Coelho. Coelho, yeah. Coelho, yeah. Actually, funnily enough, when I was doing the cycle, this book was very much an instigator for the whole going to Canada. Like I was playing inter-county hurling, but travelling every three weeks from Canada to play hurling. So I went back to university, age 24, and at the time, I was trying to decide whether or not I'd go to Canada. It was far. A good friend of mine was from there and introduced me to it. But someone gave me The Alchemist and they said, you might enjoy this. And reading it, I was like, this was written for me right now because it's all about following your, um, you know, your personal legend, as Coelho calls it, or that piece of life that all of us have within us. And it's our kind of almost responsibility to follow it. So when I read the book, I just felt, you know what, this is too right not to decide to take on this change in life direction. Yeah, and there's an element in this book as well of sort of following your destiny, which kind of tallies with what you were saying about that cycle trip across Mm. Canada was meeting your wife on the last day and so on. There was almost an element of destiny about that. Yeah, and you know, like there's, you know, like many things, things like destiny and fate and the soul of the world, and they can seem, you know, out there and wishy-washy, but... That's what I've done my whole life. I followed what I felt was my own inner calling and it's usually led me in the direction of things that challenge me greatly, such as a cycle or leaving hurling and going to Canada. But they've always given me something that without it, I would have 
been so sad to have missed it. So for me, that book speaks to so many people on a universal level because we're all on our own private heroic journey, even if we get caught up so often in our jobs and our lives and our responsibilities. But that book reminded me that there's this piece of us that is connected to the soul of the world, whatever your religious or spiritual belief is, and that you can call it what you want. It might just be that part to you that's different to everyone else, makes you unique. And there's a spark about that. And I found by hanging on to the thread of that, life has brought me in extraordinary directions that are very, very enjoyable mm. as well as challenging. But there's a specialness about that book. Like it's apparently the whole fable of, like it's about a, a young shepherd boy who's driving a sheep across Andalusia because he doesn't want to stay in the village that he's grown up and he wants to see the world, even if that's just Andalusia. And he finds his treasure on that journey. But there's so many twists and turns to that tale that it's any journey, any life challenge or story is wrapped up in that. And, um, you know, but during that cycle, just an aside, a friend of mine wrote to Paulo Coelho and said, look, this is what my friend is doing. And Coelho wrote me a note. Wow. Yeah. And I actually had forgotten that till wow. you asked me how to pronounce his name. And like I thought my friend was taking the piss when they handed me this uh, little <laughs> yeah. envelope. But yeah. inside it was always, I'll never forget it, it was always follow the signs because they'll never let you down. Wow. And uh, we had just come back from Canada and we were really in the middle of trying to finish it off, generate some fundraising out the back of it. And it was just a lovely little note to get. I wish I kept it, but I, I didn't. Wow, that's a, an amazing story. Like, would you describe yourself as a spiritual person? I think I'm, like everyone, I'm multifaceted, but I think that um, I would believe that there's a, yeah, that there's more to going on than we think. And I yeah. do believe... Because this is quite called. a spiritual book, Yeah, isn't it? it is quite a spiritual book. And actually, when I was thinking back through my five choices, there's a few things that, that connect them. They're interconnected on a few levels. Like the Alchemist book is really about following your heart, but then having your head show up for you along the way, which is kind of the way that I, I live my own life. It's unpredictable at times in terms of... Well, like, it is, because I'm even just thinking, as I mean, I was remembering your book. I mean, you know, you went to college in Canada, travelling back for her. Mm. I mean, it wasn't a straightforward uh, journey. Yeah, my, my wife used to joke that I like to do things the hard way, but I don't <laughs> think that's necessarily it. It's just I sometimes chose the road less travelled, and yeah. it worked for me. It doesn't work for everyone. Yeah. But then I don't get to live everyone's life, and they don't get to live my life. No, fair enough. And... Uh, it's a good question. Am I spiritual? I think that I'm definitely drawn to things of that nature. I'm drawn to things like even with my work with young people in SOAR, I'm drawn to people beginning to be more aware of who they are and to self-determine the life they want to live and being true to themselves and being happy in that process. So maybe if that's spiritual, then I suppose that's something I'm drawn to. Okay. We'll come back to SOAR in a mm. moment because I do want to ask you about that because I know it's something you're incredibly passionate about. But our guest on the on the uh, the Sunday show on our top five book slot is former All-Star hurler Tony Griffin. But Tony, your, your second choice, I suppose you've gone for somebody who's also uh, travelled a road less travelled, yeah. uh, if I can put it like that, uh, Ernest Hemingway, a, fare, oh, yeah, a farewell yeah. to arms. Interesting I mean, character. You, you've gone for a, a real classic here. Ah, uh, yeah. Like, it's funny, I was thinking that a lot of these books when I was choosing the five, they stick out to me because some of the images in the or burnt in my memory, you know, and I remember where I was when I was given The Alchemist and I knew what it did for me. But equally, I remember where I was when I finished A Farewell to Arms or more so I remember the scenes. Um, like there's two scenes in A Farewell to Arms that like just blew my mind at the time. One was when this fella, Frederick Henry, Tenant, he's during the Italian, he's in the Italian Second Army. Second World War. Second World yeah, War. Yeah. And um, he falls in love with the nurse who um, nurses him back to health called Catherine. Sorry, First World War. First World, first World, World sorry, War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. But, um, but there's a scene where he deserts from the army because he knows that um, he's going to be court-martialed for essentially doing the right thing. 
he's going to be court-martialed and executed. So he he deserts and he travels to some part of Italy. But he's in this hotel. He and Catherine are staying the night. She's pregnant at the time. And uh, one of the hotel porters knocks on the door. It's lashing rain and comes in and says, middle of the night, and says, they're coming for you in the morning. And you've got to get out of here. And he helps him, gives him a bowl, gives him a bottle of brandy and some sandwiches. So the scene is he rows from the Italian side of some lake to the Swiss side to freedom, essentially, or to where he'd be safer. With his... With Catherine. With his love, yeah. And it's pounding rain, and it's it's the most incredible scene. He's rowing, she's supporting him, his hands are starting to blister, and he's going by where he thinks Switzerland is, so there's a lot of drama involved. And it's just the most incredible scene. I remember reading it and just thinking to myself, that is the epitome of fighting for your life in a way, like rowing to your destiny on the other side of the lake with your, with love, your family, your, pre- your pregnant exactly. partner the future or yeah. at the bow of the boat and you're in the stern. And it's like that scene in the movie um, with Che Guevara. I don't know if you've ever seen the film of his journey. The through, motorcycle Yeah, diaries. motorcycle diaries. Yeah. Where he swims to the leper colony on the island yeah. and his friend Alberto Granado is saying, come back, come back. There's piranha in that river. You'll get eaten alive. And it's only when he gets past halfway that all his friends back on the island he started on are saying, keep going, keep going, keep going. <laughs> yeah. It's the leper yeah. colony. But he wants to say goodbye to them. This scene reminded me of that where he was rowing to his... Uh, to his future. The second scene in that, which just, you know, my wife and I have a son, he's a year old now, but at the time I didn't have children, but his wife is in labour. I'm going to ruin the book for anyone that wants to read it now. No, it's okay. But the last, <laughs> Spoiler alert. One of the last, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, the last scene is his wife is in labour and uh, their child dies. Oh my God, I will never forget. I read that and I was, I think I was on a plane or somewhere. I was loads of tears because it's such like yeah. I'm glad I didn't read it before we had Jerome but um, ah, it's so moving I just think Hemingway has a way in great simplicity of writing about the human experience in a way that just captures it yeah before we go to your next choice just tell people a little bit about Soar yeah Soar grew out of the story of Jim Steins the Irishman who died in Australia and a friend of mine and I didn't know each other at the time but we're since become very close, we um, we independently watched the documentary about his life and went to Melbourne to study what Jim had created for teenagers there. It's called Reach. They had dealt with maybe half a million young people. That was 2011, 2012 we launched SOAR. So essentially what SOAR does is it creates spaces around the country in schools and outside of schools where young people can begin to tap into all that latent potential that very often is trapped behind doubt or fear or a sense of disengagement with the world. But it harnesses that. So it's about putting young people's lives back in their hands so they decide their destiny as opposed to be you know, a victim of a script written out by circumstances outside their control. So it's done in a way where we train young people aged 20 to 30 to go into schools around Ireland and deliver programmes around emotional wellbeing, emotional resilience. We've worked around 15,000 so far. It's booked out till 2017. It's a charity. And it's been the, mo- the greatest joy of my life to see young people come alive because for the first time, potentially in their lives, they've had an environment where they can be honest about their lives, they can be real about where they want to go, and they can see that a lot of other young people are also blocked from their greatest potential through some of the things that are holding them back. Well, And it's people who aren't that much older than them who are, who are talking to and, them and, and listening to them, exactly, I suppose, exactly. more importantly. So it, it, you know, as a model for youth engagement or youth empowerment, SOAR works because it meets young people where they are at. You know, it never judges them, it speaks their native tongue and their facilitators are close enough in their age that they get them. Yeah. So it was inspired by Jim and continues to grow and develop. We're about to launch a girls' programme this year specifically for empowering young women you know, in their teens and the same with young boys. And I'm very excited by it because I'm seeing the impact it's having in communities and schools. And I think if we 
can generate enough funding to get to more young people, it can have an impact on society as Yeah, a whole. and I suspect never more needed with kids oh. than it is today because there are pressures there. I mean, I'm a bit older than you, but there mm. are pressures there, certainly that weren't there when I was no, a kid or and probably even when you, no, you were a kid. Absolutely. No, it's, and I think it's meant that the adults and elders in our society are even more disconnected from our young people. Because they don't live in the same virtual worlds. Yeah. That's why we chose facilitators close to 18. And it's really interesting because I often ask the question of young people, you know, you say you've never experienced anything like this. No adult has ever asked you these questions about your life. Why not? And I, the girl in Port Leash blew my mind when she said it. She said, they never ask us because they're afraid of the answers. Yeah. I think in some ways yeah, we are afraid of teenagers' yeah. uh, reality. Yeah, yeah. But for our part, we get stuck in and we go right in there and we say, look, what is it you need to thrive? What is it you need to be the absolute best version of yourself? And very often for us, that's young people who are, haven't shown up on the radar yet but are struggling or self-harming or are really at, at risk side where we'd facilitate their support in an agency that works with that. And so other young people... They just want to believe in themselves and okay. we'd support them with that. Okay, fantastic. It's if people want ranging. more information on that? Uh, Soar.ie. Soar.ie. Okay, great stuff. Um, listen, I suppose it kind of appropriately enough, your next choice, maybe not a million miles away from mm. the kind of sentiment you were expressing there, Embracing Ourselves mm. by Hal and Cedra Stone. T- yeah, tell yeah. us about this book. Yeah, this is a, it's like the rest are novels, but this one is fascinating. Uh, I read this two years ago. It's the kind of the, the quick version is they're two psychologists in their 90s. Well, Sidra is in her 80s, Hal is 90. And um, their essential contribution to the whole self-awareness area is that we come into the world as children. We're completely vulnerable. And as we depend on the family we grow up in, we become clever in how we develop our personality. So we develop a group of primary selves that get us what we need and protection and love in that family. But we grow up and we lose out on many of the other parts of our personality that we kind of disown or get rid of in order to be safe in our family unit. And when I read this book, it was like I had a little moment of awakening. I was like, this is exactly what our young people are at. They lose themselves in order to fit into the world. Mm -hmm. So they get the right job and all the rest of it and are acceptable. But what do they lose in that process? Like we've always said, we'd love to be able to be as free as children or to be able to express ourselves like children. But it's not really that socially acceptable as we age. No. Whereas this book's work on how can you as an adult integrate that back into your life so you get more joy out of life, you get more sense of satisfaction and you're, you're way more fearless. So I read it and I'd been doing a lot of work with teenagers and building programs with our team for young people and a lot was about trying to get young people to see their greatness because it was very often just hidden from their view. And when they saw it, they started to want to chase it and then it showed up in their lives, that sense of being the person they want to be. When I read this, I said, this is totally different to anything I'd ever seen. Um, so I wrote to them, I told them this, and uh, I was shocked when they emailed back. And they said, look, we don't travel any longer. We aren't going to come to Ireland uh, anytime soon. But if you want to come to us free of charge, we will spend a week teaching you our tools as a gift to the young people of Ireland. Now, for like a musician, yeah. this is like Mozart telling you they yeah. want to spend a week with you, yeah. jamming. And I was, uh, first of all, I was incredulous. I said, who's put this one up? But I wrote back to Sidra, and last October... I was very fortunate due to the Community Foundation of Ireland to be funded to go and spend a week living with them. And these are two people, you know, in the last years of their life. And they just taught me everything that they could in that week about their approach to unlocking potential in, in people. So I think the reason why I chose that one is it's a fascinating read that for me has opened up a whole new world. Wow. I haven't read the book, but I, I looked at a video of them and 
It was. You know, sometimes somebody just holds up a mirror to your set. He, exactly. they, they were talking about the, and you know, when I at first when I heard that, you know, the different cells, yeah, I was, kind, I was kind of kind of raised my eyes to heaven. Yeah. <laughs> and then when he started to speak about the kind of things that we all do to fit in, yeah, and, made sense. And how we suppress, and how a lot of the people we dislike mm. are people who exactly. are actually that's the part of ourselves that we have suppressed exactly. or whatever yeah. and I was kind of going right okay this yeah. guy has got me and yeah. I presume he's got everyone it's yeah. not he wasn't just talking to me he was talking to everyone it's extraordinary yeah and like one of their biggest parts of their work is integrating vulnerability into our lives and vulnerability especially for men is, is seen as weakness but what they mean by that is it's a part of us that is the scared child and by integrating in, we can be more intimate with our partners. We can be more fearless. In so many areas of life, you can get more from life when you know how you're made up. Yeah. But I think, and especially from seeing the school system, and we have some amazing teachers, but this is my personal opinion only, the school system isn't built to help us to create or develop our self-awareness. If anything, it brings us away from it. Okay. And I think it does a great injustice to our young people when it doesn't give them a space where they can find out who they are early enough to then express it on the world. Well, interesting you say that because one of the things that really struck me about your book when I read mm. it was that you were very honest about your vulnerabilities in that book. Mm. And I mean, you know, hurling Gaelic football, yeah. it's a macho kind of world. And yeah. you, you had no problems admitting certain things in that book. And I, really and I had loads of problems. I just decided it was, had yeah. to be done. But you obviously, you were able to do that to talk about your vulnerabilities. And it you know it takes a bit of guts to do that. It takes, for me, it's one of the most manly things in the world to, you know, wear your tattoos in your arm and your tears in your sleeve and be comfortable with both. Yeah. And, or whatever that may be. But the reason I wanted to be so honest is because I'd always felt there's mo- more going on than the facade that people show the world. And that's okay. We just do that to protect ourselves and fit in and get what we need. But when I wrote that book, you would be amazed at the number of intercounty players that I played against and are still playing. Mothers, sisters, fathers, people who had no interest in sport wrote to me and say, I wish that I had, I was allowed to speak about myself that way because I experienced all those things you experienced. I just thought I was the only one. Yeah, no, it's incredible. I mean, and that vulnerability is very much on display in the book. And I have to say it was something I found really refreshing about the book. And, you know, I think it spawned a lot of that in the future. Like you see now in the last, that book was written in 2000 or published in 2010. In the last five years, you've seen a much greater amount of that from athletes, um, whether it was in, in a full spectrum where it's not so much about being vulnerable as being honest. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the one does it. The likes of Don Low Q. Exactly. I've seen the same example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Okay. Our, our guest is uh, is former Clare All-Star hurler, Tony Griffin, author of Screaming at the Sky and of the uh, the Soar organisation. He's been talking about that a little earlier. And uh, we're going through his top five books. Your next one, you've spoken about your love for Canada mm. and your next one, you've picked a Canadian uh, yeah. with Scott's heritage, yeah. Alistair McLeod and No mm. Great Mischief. Yeah. Well, when I, when I moved to Canada, a great friend of mine, Travis McDonough, handed me um, a copy of this, a beautiful note on the inside. And for me, that kind of introduced me to Canada in a way that I related to, I suppose. My mother's Scottish and it's about a story of an orthodontist living in Toronto, living a very comfortable life with everything that goes with modern life in that city. But he's constantly, he's on this journey to reconnect with his whole past, which are his family come from Scotland to Cape Breton. And... There was a few things about the book, like even the title, No Great Mischief. I think it was said by some English general to send in the Scots first in some war way back. And you know what? It'll be no great mischief if they get killed. So there was something even for me, you know, about my Irish background, Scottish yeah. background. Callan father. Exactly, yeah. exactly, exactly. So, like, I was thinking about the values in that family, clan, loyalty, love, courage. It's throughout this book... And there's a lot about brothers in it. I relate to that. I have two brothers and that relationship and unsaid 
the many unsaids between brothers. Yeah. And it may not necessarily need to be said to be understood that we have each other's back. And there's a line that reoccurs in it called, all of us are better when we're loved. And again, there was just something so powerful about that line. And it's just an amazing book about catching the thread of where we come from and going back into that and seeing its huge value for today. Mm. Like for him, he's trying to understand where he is at in the world by reflecting on where he's come from. Okay. You know, so his grandparents are very present in it. But in a way that it's like, um, I suppose, the last choice of books that we're going to chat about. But there's a real thing of family and bloodlines standing the test of time. And I think because I was away from my family and quite yeah. homesick at the time, I related to a lot. Do you draw any correlation between that and, I mean, your own family and obviously a very close-knit family between the GA ties as well? I was thinking about that, you know, that Absolutely, bro- brother. Yeah, that's yeah that's exactly. Fair. And that just that, there's some things that are uh, that live on, that last. Like there's a scene in, uh, towards the end of it where, again, like some of the images just are burnt into my memory. Like there's a scene where his brother's an alcoholic and he needs to go back to Cape Breton to say goodbye because he knows he's dying. And they drive there. But they get to the Canso Causeway, which I've driven over many times, and it connects the mainland Canada to Cape Breton. And it's just a bridge over, over a body of water off the sea. And the Mountie or the, the Royal Canadian Police stop them and say, look, you can't go across the bridge. The, water's, the waves are splashing. It's a storm. You can't go any further. And um, they say, thank you very much. Now, his brother's a bit of a, he's always been his own man. And, uh, and he's dying. And when the Canadian police move away, he goes, we're going for it. And the doctor the says, we can't. Like, look at the waves. And he goes, we're going for it. And uh, he, so he said, I'll drive. I know, I know how to do this better. So he starts off and they go to the first wave that's splashing across the bridge. And he says, let's count how many days before there's a calmness. And they decide it's on wave three. He goes, we'll go on the third wave. So the wave for the first <laughs> one, if they went, they'd be swept off. They go, and on the third, he puts the foot down and they go for it. And I just thought, again, it's like... Um, Hemingway's uh, fella, Frederick Henry, rowing the length of the lake. I just thought there's something in not knowing what's on the other side of this, but saying, we're going for it. And then abandoning all fear and going in the direction of what you want that I think at some level I, I related to. Yeah, fantastic. Well, okay, let's get to your, your last choice. And I have to say, look, I, I've only met you a couple of times, but I feel like I know you well from having read your book. Nice. And so, and when, I, when I saw your fifth choice, I kind of went, yeah. That's appropriate for Tony yeah. Griffin. I'm talking about John McGarren, that they may face the right. Yeah. Because I think of all the Irish authors of the last 50 years, he's he's probably the most soulful oh. of, of authors, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, and I finished reading this book on one of the first flights I took home to play Hurling with Clare. So I was flying back after a league game or something back to Canada. And I finished it. I remember it well because there was a woman beside me. And I wept. I cried my eyes out reading the end of that book because it was, it was so powerful just the ordinariness of life was so well yeah. detailed. There's not, not very much happens in the book. Like They call, like I related because I used to call up to my uncle's house in Kilmaley and Clare with my dad, maybe every month, month or six weeks. And to me, nothing much happened every time I went up there. The same form, you know, they'd go in, they'd chat about the locals, then they'd have tea and sandwiches at the table, then they'd retire again to talk about whatever was with the weather. Yeah. For me, there was nothing really happening. But when I re- read that book, I realised there was actually so much happening. You know, they were almost... Um, they were they were in their church in a way. They were talking about local life and who'd married who and who had died. They were, as my father used to call it, tracing. And, um, <laughs> tracing uh, as in? Tracing, like tracing who's good. Like, oh, who, right. who are they? Which, which oh, Griffins yeah, okay, are they? Are they yeah. the Griffins? And so okay. on and so forth. <laughs> and I just used to just fall asleep trying to follow the whole thing. But um, not much does happen in the book. Like, they call over to each other's houses. But it, it just captures the essential ingredients of life. Like, life, death, marriage... 
um, loneliness and the mystery of life, you know, yeah. the weather, the elements. But he does it in such a way that when I finished the last scene, I just, I don't know what it was about it, but the woman next to me in the flight says, are you okay, son? And I said, <laughs> I said I'm fine. You've got to read this book. <laughs> I didn't give her the copy, but I remember th- saying to her, you've got, this is the best book I've ever read. But um, uh, what was it? Because, it, it, I mean, he's a beautiful writer. Mm. Was it just the richness of the writing, do you think? Yeah, I think that. I suppose you were saying about am I spiritual? I think more so I'm just fascinated by life and I'm really interested in people. I like getting under the surface of what I feel is is sometimes the veneer of life. And sometimes the veneer is beautiful, like with John McGarren's work. And sometimes, like The Alchemist, it's got a depth to it that explains so much of what I, I'm curious about. Okay. Fascinating. Uh, great choices by uh, Tony Griffin. I'm just going to run through them again. The Alchemist by Paolo Paolo Coelho, a, f- a Farewell to Arms by Ernest Hemingway, Embracing Ourselves by Hal and Cedar Stone, No Great Mischief by uh, the Canadian writer Alistair MacLeod, mm. and uh, finally, last but by no means least, the amazing John McGarren mm. and That They May Face the Rising Sun. All-Star Harlow with Claire and so much more besides Tony Griffin, who's doing extraordinary mm. work with SOAR, empowering children or, or young adults, I suppose. Mm. Go to SOAR.ie for mm. more details on the work they do. Tony, it's been a pleasure. It's been so you. great being here. And if I may, just to finish, I just would love to send Hal and Sidra my absolute best wishes and thank them for everything that I've done because I'm going to send this on to them. Okay, good stuff. Tony Griffin, it's been a pleasure Thanks having so you much, in. Now, here at Top 5 Books, there's a lot more interesting guests and book recommendations in our podcast feed for you. If you're listening on iTunes, I'd appreciate it. If you could subscribe and if you could give us a rating, if you have indeed enjoyed any of what you've heard. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at Chains Top 5 Books.